how many of you were here Sunday and did you remember seeing the Segway video about the Moak people in New Guinea? That was terrific. I really enjoyed seeing that and I, it kind of uh, made me understand a little bit about what I'm talking to you about tonight because what they did, if you remember the video, those of you who were not here, they decided that they would go to New Guinea and apparently, I didn't see the very first of the video, but it was the uh, the people who in New Guinea who had not ever heard the gospel before. So these missionaries came in and they prepared all of these presentations. And the first thing that they had to do to, in order to give this to the people was what? Learn the language, exactly. They had to translate it into the language that the Moke people could understand. So this is what we're doing with evidence-based evangelism. It's, we're learning to translate the gospel into the language of our culture, which is basically skepticism. If you think about our culture and the way it is now and the way it was 50 years ago, it's much more skeptical than it was 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you had, if you just said, okay, the Bible says this, then everybody was, okay, I'm going to do it. That's fine, the Bible says it. Today, we live in an age of skepticism where people don't believe the Bible's true, and therefore, they are not going to do that. Uh, let me, I got to figure out how to do this because we had to rig it up just a little bit. Uh-oh. Hold on a minute. Uh-oh. Okay, mine's not going to do right. There it is, okay. This may be a foreign idea to some of you, that Jesus is all about evidence, but let me assure you he was, and let me give you some of the evidence that Jesus is all about evidence. Um, I'm going to have to do it like this, I guess. His miracles proclaim that he is who he says he is. If you remember, he did a lot of miracles, and that's what differentiated Jesus from the other messianic pretenders, if you remember. Um, a couple of Bible verses that support that. In John 14, he said, Believe in me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So what he's saying is the works that he did were evidence that he was who he says he is. Does that make sense? All right, let's go. And then Jesus told the royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum, unless you people see signs and wonders, in other words, evidence, you will never believe. Um, if you remember that story, then Jesus didn't even have to go and heal the son. When, the next day when the guy got home and he said, well, you know, when he's, he's well. Well, when did the fever leave him? Well, it was 1 o'clock the day before, and it was when he had been talking to Jesus. So this was great evidence that Jesus had been the one to heal this um, this man's son. So that was really good evidence. Now, um, let's see. This is awkward. i got to tell you all, I'm not used to doing it like this. And we're going to have to fix this in a couple of weeks. But for now, it's going to have to work just fine. But talking about evidence, religion is an area where we don't expect to encounter evidence. I mean, think about it. Evidence is something that we expect in every other aspect of our lives, but we don't ever talk about it as, you know, uh, connected to religion. I mean, if somebody walks in here and they say it's raining outside, 
What are we going to do? Half of us are going to run to the window to look and see if it's raining outside, and the other half of us are going to get on our cell phone and go to the weather app to see if it's raining outside, right? I mean, we are a skeptical society. We don't just take people's word for anything. <clears throat> and evidence is important to religion because faith can be good or bad depending on its object. Now, I know that's an odd thing to say, but let me support it here. This is awkward. I'm so sorry. But it's working okay. Examples. Some people have their faith in Islamism. Some people have their faith in Buddhism, faith in Hinduism, and many people, especially in our country today, have their faith in atheism. So we can't just make a blanket statement that faith is good because it depends on the object of your faith. Um, but evidence can help us decide what is worthy of our faith. You know, we can examine the evidence and see whether Buddhism is true, Hinduism is true, Islamism is true. We can see whether Christianity is true based on the evidence. So this is why it is so important, especially in our society today. All right, let's see. And here is a quote from a uh, Christian philosopher. Some of you may have heard of him, Dr. William Lane Craig. Has anybody ever heard of him? He's a very, very well-known Christian philosopher. He's very smart. He's got a double Ph.D. in theology and philosophy, so you know he's very, very smart. And he said, when it comes to engaging in conversation in the public square or in letters to the editor or in conversations with coworkers, then I think it's critical that Christians be able to present objective evidence in support of our beliefs and here's the the kicker otherwise our claims have no more credibility than the assertions of anyone else who claims to have a private religious experience now what he's saying here is if you're having a conversation you're a christian you're having a conversation with a buddhist and the buddhist says oh buddha told me this you know i know that i've had a religious experience with buddha and you say well jesus told me you know i've had a religious experience with jesus i know jesus well there's no objective evidence to decide who's right or who's wrong you're at a standstill you can't go either way so this is why we need to learn the evidence for um, Christianity and and learn how to use it to effectively evangelize the people around us uh, let's see make sure I'm right so in our society if there's all of this evidence that I'm talking about which I really haven't gotten to tell you what it is yet so if there's all this evidence, then why doesn't everybody in our culture believe? And that's a very good question. And I think one of the reasons is it hasn't been really emphasized in the churches. Now, it's beginning to be emphasized, but if we Christians don't know the evidence, how are we supposed to expect secular people, the people in our culture, to actually know even that there is great evidence for Christianity? Because a lot of people assume there isn't any. So we... Um, you know, we have to get this word out. But first we have to get it into the churches before we get it into the, the people around us. Does that make sense? We have to first know before they know. Let's see. And here, the, um, 
Here is a book. This is another explanation of why people don't believe in our culture. How many of you have heard of Richard Dawkins? Do you know who he is? He's one of the world's leading atheists, and he has written several books, and this book is called The God Delusion, the picture of this book. In fact, I looked it up a while ago. He's actually sold more than 3 million copies of this book. And Richard Dawkins, he has an agenda. He wants, he's not the only one. There are many of them out there, but he's one of the primary ones. And he not only wants everybody to be atheists, but he even goes so far as to say that if you're a Christian and if you're bringing up your children uh, and telling them that there's a hell, that you're guilty of child abuse. So this is what our society, our culture is coming to if atheism continues to expand like it is. And here's a quote from him from this book. If your whole upbringing and everything you have been told by parents, teachers, and priests have led you to believe that sinners burn in hell, it's entirely plausible that words could have a more damaging effect than deeds. Now that's from uh, one of the chapters in this book. It's a chapter on childhood abuse and the escape from religion. So he's building a case here that... Um, that it's bad to be a Christian. And this is, this is kind of the thinking of some of the people that are out there. And I know it's, it's awful to hear that, but this is that we need to know what's going on out in the world. Um, <clears throat> uh, there are also a lot of these surveys that are being done, particularly by people like the Pew Research Center, and they say that the nuns are on the rise. This is one of the segments of our population uh, the nuns, that means the number of Americans who do not identify with any religion. This number continues to grow. So the nuns are growing, not the Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S. One-fifth or 20% of the U.S. public are religiously unaffiliated today, so identify with the nuns. Uh, the number rises to one-third of Americans under 30. So the number is something like, 33% of the younger people, people under 30. So this is, shows the trend, shows the direction that our society is going in. Um, it's going in the way of no religion versus, you know, Christianity or any other religion. It's going in the way of no religion. So um, we want to do something about that. But that makes sense. Just out of curiosity, okay, if 20% identify as nuns, what do you think? How, what's the percentage of people who would identify as Christians in our society, if, in, in the U.S.? Anybody got a guess? If 20% are nuns, anybody want to make a guess? That's the low number, but what did you say? You said... You, Probably not much. Okay. Well, you would think from this, maybe it'd be closer to 80%. Maybe it'd be a high number. But that's not true. Let me uh, give you... This is awkward, but I can do it. Here's another book. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. It's written by John Dickerson in 2003. John Dickerson says, The church is not as big as we think. He says, By multiple accounts, evangelical believers are between 7 and 9% of the U.S. population. Now, the way he got this number, I know, this is a very low number. You said four, though, so that, 4%. Well, you're even lower than he says. He's saying less than 10%, but this was 2013 numbers, so who knows? By now, Frank may be right. We don't know. But um, 
the way they got these numbers, they didn't just ask people, are you evangelical? They didn't ask them to self-identify. What they did was actually ask them uh, lifestyle questions, like how many times a week do you go to church or how many times a month do you go to church or, you know, questions like that. What do you do with your money? You know, what percent of your money do you give to church? So that's how they actually identified evangelicals, and they came up with this less than 10% number. That's pretty scary when you think about it, that we evangelicals, and I'm counting everybody in this room, I think if you're here on a Wednesday night, you pretty much count as an evangelical. Um, we are actually less than 10% of the U.S. population. So that's, that's hard to take. But we can do something about it. And what I'm going to be telling you, and over the next few weeks we're going to do this too, is talk about how we can use evidence to influence the, the people that are in our sphere of influence, the ones around us. We may not be able to uh, be a missionary to Turkey or a missionary to another country, but we can, we can actually influence the people that we know. And, and there's a really good, great way to do that. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, let's go on here just a little bit. To even paint a bigger picture, a worse picture, Secularism is being taught in our universities today. This quote, forget what your parents taught you, was a quote that a friend of mine's daughter, her first year in college, she came back talking about this, that a professor that she had actually told her in class, told the whole class, forget what your parents taught you. In other words, he's going to give you new stuff. Everything your parents taught you was wrong. Now, he's going to fill your mind with new stuff that you need to know about. And this was not in some college out on the left coast. This was a college in Alabama. Now, it was not Alabama. It was not Auburn, but it was another college here in Alabama. And so this is what's going on in our uh, universities. Well, I was told mm -hmm. when I went to college that you could not take your religion into the workplace. And I stood up in class first day. I said, oh, the Holy Spirit is in my heart wherever I go. He goes. That's great. Did y'all hear what Nancy said? Um, that was at Gadsden Junior College. Yeah, Gadsden State Junior College. Okay, that's good, but most people are not going to be as bold as you were to do that, I don't think. Yeah, I, did, I wasn't like the rest of the time at school. Yeah. By this particular lady. Oh, I see, I see. And here is another statistic that I want to share with you. This is a book called You Lost Me. It's by David Kinnaman, and he's with the Barna Group. I think everybody's probably heard about the Barna Group. Um, he says 59% of young people with a Christian background report that they had or have dropped out of attending church after going regularly. Now, we've heard different statistics on that. What he did was um, this was a survey in 2011, of individuals who attended a Protestant or Catholic church or who identified at any time as a Christian before the age of 18. And it's even worse than that. If you think about, uh, you think about kids, well, when they go to college, then suddenly they have all this freedom to go or not to go to church, and so they don't go. He actually says in this book that they have made the decision to drop out of church before. They've made the decision sometime during high school. It's just that in high school, they don't have the freedom to choose. They just come to make mama happy. But by the time they get to college, they've already, they've made that decision. They go to college and they don't go to church. So, so they're not getting the influence that they have been getting, you know, when they're at home. Um, and 
I was one of those kids, okay? <laughs> I don't know if anybody recognizes this family. Some of you know this is my family from Hoax Bluff. This is Myra and Bill Street. This is circa 1973. Myra and Bill Street, to the left is my sister Nancy, my brother Cosby, that's me. And I know the hair is a little bit different, but it really is me. And then my younger sister Nelda. And we were a typical American family. I mean, we were in church almost every time the doors were open. But I did that. Once I, I got, uh, you know, away from home and got into college, I didn't go. I did not go. Uh, my parents, you know, weren't there to make me, so I just simply didn't go. So this is why I really identify with some of these statistics, because I understand I was there. Luckily, uh, the Holy Spirit drew me back in. But uh, that's what I want to talk to you about, is how we can do that. And... Here, oh, wait a minute, I forgot to do it. I got to do it for you guys, too. We'll fix that. Anyway, this is a picture of First Baptist Hoax Bluff, and this is where I grew up. And I guarantee you that First Baptist Hoax Bluff taught me all the right things. I knew uh, the gospel backwards and forwards. I mean, I knew all the right things, but I never was taught any evidence. I never was taught, and, and I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying churches at that time were not doing that. They were not teaching evidence so what in fact happened was I had a crisis of belief and I won't bore you with the whole story but I remember wondering kind of in the back of my mind well how did I know that what they were teaching me was true how did I know what mama told me was true because I remember reasoning that people on the other side of the world were taught some entirely different things you know, and they believed that that was true. So here we were sending missionaries to them, but how did we know who was right and who was wrong? Does that make sense? And so I didn't really have anybody to sound this off of, but it was a really, I won't say it was a big thing in the forefront of my mind, but it was something that kind of simmered in the back of my mind. Does that make sense? Has anybody else ever wondered about those things? Anybody else ever had those thoughts? Or am I the only one? I can't believe I'm the only one but uh, it looks like I am the only one. That's okay. I'm not the only one, I, I, I assure you of that. Yes, but see, the question is, how did I know the Bible was true versus the Koran? Because they say different things. And there are a lot of people who, in Islam who believe the Koran is true. Well, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this in a minute. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you a quote. This That's true. That's true. They are very bold. They should. We don't we don't need to stop short. We need to do more than is necessary. That's true. Now, I've got one more quote here. This is from internationally known philosopher Nana Street Dunton. And I have to tell you, I really am internationally known. I know y'all think I'm just a hometown girl, but I'm internationally known. I have a cousin who lives over in Germany. She knows me. And I have a friend who lives in London. She knows me. So I'm internationally known. So <laughs> I'm going to put my quote up there with a quote from William Lane Craig, who has two PhDs. Anyway, this is really my quote. In skeptical America today, any church that doesn't teach the evidence for our faith is teaching that there is no evidence for our faith. Think about that for just a minute. Um, what, what I'm saying is I grew up in 
a place where no evidence was ever talked about, no evidence was ever ever taught or even talked about. And the message that that sent to me was there is no evidence because if there's evidence in every other segment of our society, if there's evidence, you talk about it. I mean, you just do. This is what we do. Uh, we, we, we talk about things that we care about. Um, so anyway, it just makes sense that if, if there's no evidence, then people get the idea, if, there's, if it's not talked about, they get the idea that there is no evidence. So that's right, but people have to know the evidence. They have to know what the evidence is. So um, let me go on. And let me tell you how I came out of this, and this is just, uh, there could have been several ways, but I really know that the Holy Spirit, he knows that the Holy Spirit knows me very, very well, as the Holy Spirit knows every single one of us, knows us intimately. And the Holy Spirit knew that I liked books. And so the Holy Spirit led me to this book one day, and it's by Hugh Ross, who spoke here in our church a couple of years ago. And I won't go into the details about it, but when I read this book, it was like the first couple of pages, it realized, it made me understand that there is evidence outside the Bible that can tell you that the Bible is true. And uh, the thing about his testimony that really, really hit home with me on the first couple of pages of this book was that as a teenager, he investigated the evidence for the religions of his friends. This was in, he was living in um, uh, Vancouver, so over in Western Canada, and all his friends were the Eastern religions, the Hinduism, the Buddhism, um, you know, Baha'i. Those are different Eastern religions, but he didn't know any Christians because there just weren't any Christians in his school, and his family wasn't anything. So he decided that what he would do is take each of the holy books of these people, uh, of the religions of his friends, and he would compare them to the record of nature, and he would see which one matched up with the record of nature, and that had to be written by the God who created the universe. I mean, that's a very simple idea, right? Well, he started studying these books, and found out that there was very, very little that he could even test. And so then he got to the Bible, and he realized from reading it, Genesis 1, from a scientific perspective, he realized that it does match up. There are things that have to be, super, they're supernaturally inspired, and that means the Bible had to be written by the creator of the universe. And by the time he got to the end of the book, he, he was convinced, and he signed it, signed the back of it, and became a Christian without knowing any other Christians. So there was nobody that he was in the sphere of influence of. He just, he read the Bible and studied it and matched it up with the record of nature. But this really hit home with me because it made incredible sense to me that you can actually take something like religion and you can investigate it, and you can see whether it stands up or not. And if the Bible is written by the, the creator of the universe, and I assure you it is, then it should match up with the record of nature and, and, and the other evidences that we have. And there are, there are many more evidences, and let me just kind of tell you a few of them. Let me get right here. What about this evidence I keep talking about? How much evidence is there that exists to support Christianity? There is so much. It's unbelievable. I'm going to a conference um, this weekend. It's an annual conference in Charlotte, and it's the National Conference on Christian Apologetics. There will be 100 speakers 
talking about how we know the Bible is true, how we know Christianity is true. And you can't even listen to them all. They have these breakout sessions, and you have to pick the one that you want to go to. And, and there is so much evidence. It's just amazing. But just to kind of give you a little bit of an overview, I'm going to tell you about some of the topics here. Just some of the topics are, for example, origin of the universe. If the universe had always existed, then it, it wasn't created. But if the universe came into being, then it's created just like the Bible says. So the origin of the universe is very important. That's one of just one of the little topics that we can investigate. The fine-tuning of the universe, the odds that we have a planet here that just the right time that can support life and it can support advanced life for us to be here, to uh, be one of God's creatures who can communicate with him and made in his image. The fine-tuning has to be just exactly right. And it's just incredible the amount of evidence that this gives us that it is the God of the Bible who created us and created the universe. Another topic, origin of life on earth. Um, a lot of people don't realize that um, naturalism says that somehow life just came from non-life. Like two rocks got together and decided to, to become life one day. I mean, you know, you have to have an intelligence behind life. And the, the evidence that naturalism says, for example, the origin of life, naturalism says it uh, would have taken a very long time, but the actual evidence shows us that it was an instantaneous event. It came, it happened in a, in a geologic instant. It did not happen over billions of years. It happened very suddenly. And so we have evidence for that. Also, creation versus, versus naturalism. This is, we kind of talk about evolution. If you remember, Fuzzerana was here last year and he talked about evolution, whether it's true or not. And so uh, either we're created or we evolved. And so we have to kind of look at that. But it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that's one of the things that we will be looking at in the next few weeks. Also, there's the history of biblical text. Um, how do we know that the Bible that we are reading today is the same words that were written down thousands of years ago? You know, there are, there are people who make their living doing something called textual criticism. And this is how we know that the Bible, we can count on the Bible we're reading today to be very close to the original Bible that was written down, you know, on the autographs five, uh, several thousand years ago. So this is, these are questions that people have. I mean, you see uh, skeptics out there bringing up, you know, things like, oh, the Bible can't be true and, and things like that. So um, let's see, I have a few more. Also, probably, has anybody ever thought about the problem of evil? This is, in some circles, they say that this is the biggest problem, uh, the biggest stumbling block for people who uh, don't believe in the Bible, the problem of evil. And it goes something like this. If there is a God, a good God who created everything and knows everything and knows, you know, how to do everything, um, and wants, and is a good God who wants things to be good, why does evil exist? It seems like God could just poof and do away with evil. Well, this is one of the things that uh, they say, well, there must not be a God then. If we have evil in the universe, then that says there's no God. But there are really good answers to this question. 
and I don't have time to go into them tonight, but this is a really good question to unpack and talk about. It's a philosophical question. Um, another topic is the origin of humanity. Are we actually descended from ape-like creatures, or are we special creations of God like the Bible says? And what is the evidence to show that we are special creations of God? There is a, a lot of evidence in this area. Um, so it's, it's very interesting to me. Another thing we thought about, is Jesus the only way to heaven? Because other religions say that their way is a way to heaven. And we say, no, Jesus is the only way to heaven. So what, how do we know that the Bible is true when it says that, that Jesus is the only way to heaven? So there's, we have to have answers to these things because people will ask you these. If you are ready to go out and talk about this, then God will put people in your sphere of influence that can actually um, ask you these questions. A good example of that, and I know I keep talking about him, but I know him pretty well, and, and I, I know a lot of his stories, is Hugh Ross. He flies a lot, and he will be on an airplane, and he will have somebody. He tells a story about uh, not too long ago. He was in an airport, and he was talking to Kathy, his wife, on the phone about a book he was writing, and so somebody overheard him talking about Genesis, and it was a guy who was a professor at some college in California, Stanford or somewhere. He just overheard this conversation. So he went, when Hugh hung up with Kathy, he went to him and he said, I just heard you talking about Genesis like you really believe it's true. And so, <laughs> I know, I know. And so they had a conversation in the airport. They got on the plane. And the guy was sitting up in first class, I think, and Hugh doesn't fly first class. He was sitting way in the back of the plane. Well, the guy, once he could get up in the air, he got up from his first class seat and went back all the way to the back and started asking Hugh questions about how he knew Genesis was true. You know, what, what is it that convinced him that Genesis was true? And, I mean, they just had a very long conversation. So see what a difference I'm sure, I'm sure this made in this guy's life and think about all the people that this guy then goes out and influences. If Hugh could just tell him, and he may not have convinced him totally right then, but at least if he could get him on the right track, then I, I know the Holy Spirit would put somebody else in his uh, path that would help him, and, and that's kind of how it seems to work. But um, these are the kinds of things. Now, the Holy Spirit has not yet put um, somebody who's a Ph.D. at Stanford in my sphere of influence okay <laughs> I'm not quite on that level but he did put an airline pilot one time I sat next to an airline pilot he wasn't flying the plane but I sat next to an airline pilot who was going home a delta pilot and he was he was going home to Louisville and he was he kept asking me well how old is the earth and all these things you know and I was able to tell him and he he had a book that he was reading called I don't have enough faith to be an atheist and I was able to tell him yes I've read that book and it's a true book and it's really great and you need to really uh, he was questioning his faith. He'd been raised as a Christian, but he was questioning his faith. So, I mean, I didn't do a lot, but I was able to tell him a few things. So, um, what I'm saying is, once we kind of learn these things, we may be able to help people along. Sometimes people need some help to get to, you know, the Roman road of salvation. How many of you have ever taken a course in, in getting somebody, and showing somebody the Roman road to salvation? Um, we should all be able to do that. But the problem is getting them to that row. There are so many people who 
They don't want to know how to get saved. They don't want to know the Roman road to salvation because they don't believe there is a God. So we have to start out by giving them some of this really good information. Um, And last but not least, I want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus because that is the biggest evidence. Uh, There's so much evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And I'm not talking about just that Jesus lived, you know, just that he was a person who lived on earth, but the fact that he not only died by crucifixion, but that he, was, he re- was raised again on the third day. You think, okay, how can we actually have evidence for something like that that happened 2,000 years ago? There's a lot of evidence for that. I'll just give you one little piece just to kind of whet your appetite. But um, just take the Apostle Paul, for example. The Apostle Paul was a persecutor of Christians. You remember his story. And then he was on the road to Damascus, and he... As he testifies, and Luke testifies, he had an encounter with the risen Jesus. After that, it wasn't long after that, suddenly he went from being a persecutor of Christians to the, the, the missionary Paul. I mean, the greatest missionary, the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest missionary that in the world ever. Uh, so what caused that change from somebody who persecuted Christians to 180 degree turnaround somebody who actually was out a Christian himself and he died a martyr he died um was he beheaded I think he was beheaded a martyr yeah so I mean and and this is one of the types of evidence that we look at what could possibly account for his change well it was what Luke testifies and also Paul himself said it was the encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus and that makes sense I mean what else could it have been he didn't do it for money, he didn't do it for fame, and he died a martyr. So, you know, that, that's just one little piece of evidence, this one idea. Now, here's what we're going to do. Um, if y'all remember, two years ago, Hugh Ross came out, and we did the Faith Based on Evidence. Look at the little logo up in the top, Faith Based on Evidence. The first ba- Faith Based on Evidence mini-conference, he came and talked about evidence from astronomy, that we know that there has to be a God, that the Bible is true from astronomy. And then last year, we had, this is last January, we had uh, Fuzz Rana come out and talk about evidence from biology. Particularly, he talked about evolution. And was evolution or naturalism true, or was uh, creation true? Did, did it creation like God says in the Bible? And so we kind of investigated that. Um, this time... What we're going to talk about is the resurrection of Jesus. In January, we have two speakers coming that are going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. So this will be something that we can talk about between now and then, and hopefully we can get all of our skeptical friends to come and hear that. Uh, we want to, if, Even if our skeptical friends don't come, we need to hear it so that we can be more uh, educated as far as these things so that we can go out and we can actually have these conversations with people who are in our spheres of influence about how we know that Jesus is really the is God you know I mean that he really did rise again and that he is God